Howard, just if you could maybe firstly um, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what your role is at the university and how you, how you came into having that role, actually. Well, I, I started out really um, as a youth worker, volunteer youth worker, as a teenager in my local village and then in a local church. And, and, and then I came to Cardiff University. I carried on volunteering as a youth worker and then I finished at university and um, carried on being a youth worker and a footballer, which I loved doing. I did a PhD um, on young people's experiences of the criminal justice system. Didn't really want to be an academic, didn't really want to be a full-time youth worker. Wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a, a musician or a footballer, probably, and uh, I enjoyed playing football. But then I went and got a research job at Oxford, um, pretty much full time. Um, but I lived in Birmingham, mm. carried on doing voluntary work as a youth worker and uh, with various kinds of community projects in Birmingham. And um, I didn't really ever have a proper job um, until the University of Glamorgan um, seemed to be interested in me making an application there in 2004 five. And so uh, I sought a position as a, a chair in social policy. Uh, my title is Professor of European Youth Policy because uh, beyond all the local stuff that I've always done, uh, I've uh, increasingly expanded my role across the world um, with the Council, well, with the European Commission, then with the Council of Europe and the United Nations. So I've done youth policy reviews of 21 different European countries. And um, I suppose that's where my name, my title, my Professor of European Youth Policy, derives from. Um, so I, I, I sort of blend policy activity at governmental level with research activity on young people and uh, still do some practical volunteering work these days with Pontypridd Town Football Club. What do you do with them? Well, I'm qualified referee, coach, first aider and safeguarding officer. Wow. And under COVID, I'm the COVID-19 compliance officer. So you've caught me at a bad week, Steve, because yeah. it's the return to organised football for under-18s this week. And I'm desperately trying to make sure that all of our teams at every age group have a grass or a, um, a artificial 3G pitch to train on as of this week. Wow, so it's quite a lot of work there. They're, they're, they're not at Anderson Harrod Park anymore. Are they at the move? Is that right? The first team is? Uh, we're not in the park because the, uh, the park didn't give permission to expand the seating. Um, and Pontypridd Town first team are now in the Welsh League Division 1. Yeah. Requires a certain standard of ground. Um, and so we're at the sports park. We're at USW Sports Park. Okay. Yeah. Um, I used to like that little stadium, actually. I used to like Anderson Harrod Park. There's something about it, you know. There was something very special about it, and we would have dearly loved to have stayed there, I think. The Gride play on it uh, these days. Uh, but we built some very good relationships with USW, with Steve Savage, who's the director of football. Yeah. Trying to sort of bring together the um, senior team, you know, the, the people who really look like Premier League footballers with the under fives who look at them as superheroes. Where are you from originally? Is it, are you from the Midlands originally? Are you? Uh, born in Yorkshire, actually. Born in okay. Hull. Uh, very right. briefly lived in a council house in Kent 
for about the next eight years, moved to the Midlands when my dad got a better job in Birmingham, went to school in Birmingham. So I had a very privileged um, upbringing in the sense of being a child in the countryside, able to sleep in haylofts and, you know, annoy farmers and, and ride my bicycle around the country lanes. And then at 9, 10, 11, found myself in almost in the heart of Birmingham and able to grow up um, in my teenage years in the city, going to Birmingham Town Hall every week to see a range of bands that are now rather legendary. I misled Zepp, actually. They were four shillings, but I went the following week to see a band called Love for the same price. That yeah. was my first live music gig, and I rarely missed a, missed a week without going to Birmingham Town Hall to see somebody. Yeah, and we were talking beforehand about um, your links with music, which maybe we'll come back to in a bit, because it seems to me that we've got a fair bit in common, apart from like you're a professor and I'm not, but um, in terms of your... <laughs> Your love of football and your love of music and, uh, you know, uh, the, the stuff you're about, which is great. And um, so tell us a little bit about uh, when did you, I suppose you, you came into it um, in terms of what you were doing originally, working within the youth work field. And you sort of gradually developed more of a, um, a deeper uh, interest in it as it went forward. Is that how it worked for you? Well, yes. I mean, I'm still strangely enough right now at the European level very focused on the question of youth work but actually a lot of the time it's more about youth research so I was looking at entrepreneurship I was looking at offending behavior I was looking at homelessness drug misuse curriculum reform in, in secondary education whole range of sort of youth issues rather than youth work mm-hmm. um, so I was I, throughout the 80s and the 90s I was doing uh, an increasing body of youth research. I was running a youth centre in Birmingham, a youth and community centre, working with, you know, ordinary teenagers of various ilks. And um, and more and more I was getting involved in policy um, development work, particularly around the European institutions and the emergent post-Soviet countries. So countries like Moldova, Albania, uh, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Ukraine. I'm still currently working with Ukraine at the moment uh, <clears throat> and, and, and with Armenia in the last couple of years. So uh, it's just kind of unfolded, really, and opportunities have come my way and I've sought to grab them and do them well and keep rolling on. I've always rather liked working with that sort of group. I, I write in my current book that. I kind of grew up in children's homes without ever being in care because my dad was a social worker and uh, he used to ferry me round children's homes and approved schools and remand homes and assessment centres. And, uh, you know, I had to learn to kind of coexist with young people who were very, very different from me. I mean, talking about music, one of the points I make in, in, in the book was that at school it was Jimi Hendrix, but in the children's homes it was Jimmy Ruffin. And, uh, <coughs> you know, I, I, I kind of secured a love of Tamla Motown and reggae, uh, which was not the sort of heavy rock and Black Sabbath type of stuff that uh, was was favoured at school. So I, I became a kind of quite a versatile individual in relation to that. Now, having said all of that, one of the greatest achievements that Wales has ever produced was its policy document in the year 2000 called Extending Entitlement, which was really recognising that most of these kids have never had a chance. And what we need to do is 
<clears throat> give them a better range of opportunities and experiences and support and encouragement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully that would turn the corner for a lot of those young people who otherwise end up in the care system, the mental health system or the criminal yeah. justice system. Um, yeah. When I looked at the title of your book, um, it made me think about the Milltown Brothers. Remember them? The band? Yeah. Yes. Um, the Milltown Boys Revisited, um, the book, it actually is effectively a follow-up to a book you wrote several years back called Five Years, I think, Howard, is that well, right? Milltown Boys Revisited is the last book that was written about them, um, which yeah. written in 2004, published in 2004, mm. researched in the year 2000, so it took four years to write. I had half a million words of transcript from 30 interviews. Wow. I went to live in Denmark for a year just to work on the book. I mean, it was an absolute labour of love. I, because I'd never really been a proper academic, I'd written a vast amount of stuff. But a lot of it was hurried and, you know, had to be done quickly to move on to the next research project. Mm. And I was determined that uh, that time round I would not let the boys down, you know. <clears throat> I had written five years when I moved away from Milltown, and uh, I didn't write it as a book, I wrote it as a memoir. I thought, you know, I've been a very lucky individual as a sort of middle class, well-educated, you know, well-spoken, snobbily spoken, as the boys often say, um, individual who, yeah, it was a privilege to be get close enough to those boys to really understand the kind of circumstances in which they lived, and I didn't want to forget about it, I had this idea that when I reached the sort of age I am now, that I might be able to sort of open the memoir and remember what I'd done when I was 19, 20, 21, 22, up to about 25. And uh, and then a colleague at Cardiff University said, had I ever written about the boys? And I said, I'd written this memoir. And she said, could she read it? And she read it. And she said, you really ought to get this published. So it was published in, 2000, uh, in 1981 as five years. Then 20 years later, I was working with the Blair government, 1997, on all these issues, you know, teenage pregnancy, youth crime, school dropout, drug taking. And I kind of thought, I wonder what happened to the Milltown boys. I kept in touch a little bit with a few of them. So I went to see one of them in 1999 and we drew up a list of 67 names. And he said that seven of them are already dead. So um, mm. that was 60. Um, I thought if I could interview half of them in the year 2000, that's pretty good going. And I did. I interviewed 30. I've actually spoken, shaken hands when you could shake hands with 47 Mm. of those 60. So, um, you know, I've had a lot of contact with them around that time. Wrote the book in 2004, kept in touch with a few of them after that, but by and large lost contact again. In fact, I went to see one of them um, not for the research, just to see him because on Facebook there was this sense that he, he was dying, that he'd had a nearly a, a near-death experience. And I asked him what was the matter, and he sent me his phone number, and I rang him up, and I went to see him. And he said, I knew you'd be showing up pretty soon because another 20 years have gone by and it's time for another book. Because um, I'd not laid eyes on him for all that yeah. time. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of, um, you know, one step forward, two steps back about writing another book. One of them died in 2014 and people said, oh, you've got to write another book about the rest of them. 
Um, I was reluctant to do that. Some of them didn't want me to do it. Some of them still don't want me to do it. Um, mm. But many of them eventually decided I should do it. And with their consent, I went ahead. And lockdown presented the great opportunity to get in touch. As I sometimes say, you can't go shoplifting if there's no shops open. So, uh, Good luck. Good luck. So, so they were accessible, uh, although many of them were not very... Uh, uh, proficient in new technologies they never sent text messages they didn't know <laughs> what zoom was or anything like that but we we made it work i interviewed 12 only 12 in inverted commas um i talked to a few of the others but they declined they didn't want to take part and i respect that decision yeah. but 12 gave me enough evidence and one of them said you've got to put yourself in the story because you've been part of this story for nearly 50 years and so i did i started to write differently that summer summertime last year i started to um dedicate quite a lot of the new book to my relationship with the boys and their relationship with me so it's as much a sort of methodological relationship book as it is a story of their own lives unfolding to the age of 60 and the new book is called the milltown boys at 60 yes um so we talked about uh, earlier as well. We talked about um, a book which I which I which I'd confused. I said to you, remember um, uh, Glenn Jordan, who was actually my favourite all-time lecturer, as it happens, when I was studying where you are now at, Tr- at Treforest. Uh, I love Glenn's lectures, and I, I remember from all these years ago. I remember him talking about a book, and I think it was to do with uh, the lads in commas, and I think you told me it was Paul Willis's book actually. And in this book, and as you described it, reminded me of it essentially. It was, I mean, I went to school in a place called Glen Taft, which is now a Welsh language school at the time. It was a really bad school, to be honest. It was really, you know, all the best teachers were leaving and, and everything else. Graffiti everywhere, quite, you know, a lot of silly stuff going on. Um, so, and it reminded me a little bit of a class that I was in for history, funny enough, where uh, essentially the, some of the kids were just, you know, pretty well smoking out the window and all the rest of it, just, you know, not taking any interest whatsoever. And in that book, as you know, way, way more than I do. Um, but it did resonate with me that by being at the back of the class and messing around and sort of you know, not conforming and being you know, oppositional to, to, to kind of uh, the system, in fact, they were defeating themselves, um, you know, and, and that's kind of really still resonates with me now. And I, I think to some extent, some of the issues that you, you explore are similar in some ways and trying to break down these kind of barriers to working class youngsters, I suppose, and giving them a reason to, you know, take a different path, would you say? Yeah, I mean, the Willis book, Learning to Labour, subtitled How Working Class Kids Get Working Class Jobs, was a huge influence on me. It was published in 1978. So it was based on um, field work that had taken place in 1973-74. So a few years earlier than than my study, you know, most of the Milltown boys were born in 1959, 1960 or 1961, mainly in 1960. So they technically, officially left school in 1976. Um, Willis made the argument in his book that um, the uh, the lads from Wolverhampton in his study were preparing themselves for a future of manualized labor. That was what he talked about on the shop floor or on the building site. And all of those rebellious uh, 
anti-school cultural traits that he, that he reports and they revealed to him, you know, spitting and swearing, smoking out, out the window, you know, paying no attention, messing around, were precisely the kind of qualities that served them well on the building site or on the factory floor. The sadness was that, of course, I, and I was working as a youth worker in the industrial West Midlands around that time, end of the 70s, um, they were preparing themselves for unemployment. Uh, they weren't, you know, the, the kind of factory jobs and building site work was diminishing. So that, that was one of the reasons why I went back in, in the 90s to see what, what had happened to the Milltown boys. Academics were writing about risk society, about choice biographies. People have got to shape their own futures. I was thinking, these guys, you know, they've got criminal records. They've got very few, usually no educational qualifications. They'd started off at Bessemer Road Market, um, age 16, learning to fiddle, you know, knocked off goods, you know, the broken boxes of oranges that will supplement their income a little bit. Um, and I thought, well, you know, are they, are they all on the scrap heap? Or have they found new pathways in? And of course, it's a within a relatively small group of people it, who came from almost identical circumstances. It's such a diverse story. I mean, the two most successful of the boys, one doesn't live in anywhere near South Wales anymore, mm. um, lives up in, uh, in Chester, you know, is the partner in a company which has a six or eight million pound turnover. You know, drives the top of the range, uh, Alfa Romeo, or did last time I saw him, you know, lives in a very expensive detached ha bungalow in a small, quaint village. Uh, <laughs> and as I concluded the last book, his, his grandchildren will not have a clue where their grandfather was brought up. Whereas others, you know, one grabbed me uh, around the back of my head uh, in a friendly fashion in Cardiff Centre a couple of years ago as I was waiting at a bus stop and... Uh, I turned around and saw it was him and said, where are you off to? He said, well, where do you think? Same place that I'm always going when I'm here, probation office, <laughs> you know. And, um, you know, he, he's really still living the same kind of um, not quite sure what's going to happen next sort of life that he was living when he was 13, 14. Yeah. And, and you, you kind of alluded to it earlier. You've built up, you know, in some cases, long lasting and fairly kind of, I suppose, as much as you can, by distance, fairly kind of deep relationships. You know these people really well, don't you? So, you know, it's, it's been quite a, a, life, a lifelong journey for you and, and them, in a way. How, how do you think your book um, and, and, your, and your work in that way, how do you think it helps to influence the powers that be to do things differently and to uh, be more supportive and imaginative with how they deal with these issues? <laughs> Well, it's, it's always easy to prescribe policy and it's very difficult to make it happen in any sort of meaningful and, and useful way. You talk about the deep relationship and, of course, the, the thing that I witness so often, I mean, probably happened to me as a youth worker, you know, in my professional role as a youth worker, mm -hmm. certainly would happen to social workers or probation officers or police officers or teachers, that... Um, if kids don't want to reveal stuff, they're very good at spinning yarns and uh, offering very superficial kind of stories. And as I've sometimes said to young people when I've got ratty with them and sort of arguing back, I've said, if you give them such a lot of bullshit, how do you expect them to respond in any useful way to your your needs? You know, they, yeah. a lot of these people are really trying hard to 
support you in various ways. Um, but if you don't trust them and you don't give them that information, they can't support you very effectively. So you get this kind of vicious downward circle. The, the real message of the Milltown Boys book, if there is a kind of big policy message, is how both in time and in space, you've got to sort of pull things together. It's the old thing about, for God's sake, tie your ropes together. Um, the private seriously influences the public. You know, personal relationships, mental health issues affect what you do in the labour market, affect what you do in the housing market, affect what you do um, in, in, in public life, if you like. And a lot of these, um, a lot of studies are often a very short term and b very um, focused on one particular strand of people's lives. So, you you know, I mean, I did it as well in the 80s. I was looking at the transition from school to work. So yeah. what did you look at? You looked at qualification, you looked at education, vocational training and labour market destinations. You didn't pry into home background, except in terms of getting some sense of socioeconomic status. You know, what did your father do as a job? Mm. Um, and it's much more complicated than that than that and you also need to drill into people's futures on a much more long-term basis i mean it's, it's well known that uk research studies in employment for example i mean i was talking i was speaking at a conference in france uh, on online but it was mm. hosted in france a couple of weeks ago and when when we were doing the new deal for young people our sense of a successful transition to the labor market was a job that had lasted more than 13 weeks. <laughs> well, when, when Blair's government sent me to Paris to meet the French government to talk about how wonderful the New Deal for young people was, and I was talking to the French that 13 weeks was our marker, they nearly all fell off their chairs because for them, the marker is five years of sustainable or continuous employment. So you've got, and, and the other the other debate in, in academia is always about agency versus structure. How much control do people have over their lives versus, uh, you know, to what extent are they kind of propelled by wider structural circumstances, race, gender, class, disability, geography, yeah. into particular positions? And my argument is if you talk to the Milltown boys, there were, were times when they clearly exercised considerable agency and there were, other times when they were clearly chucked from pillar to post. And it wasn't like you had agency throughout your life. You acquired it at age 17 and it lasted forever. You know, sometimes it dissipated for all kinds of reasons. And sometimes it was reacquired by new opportunities, new horizons, new chances. So it's mm. not very helpful for policy because basically I say things are a damn sight more complex than uh, policymakers usually give credit for. Yeah. Um, in if you summed up the legacy of, 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 of I suppose, um, both both of those books, I suppose, you know, the five years and then the Milltown Boys Revisited, is there some sort of legacy, do you think, in there, if you know what I mean? Well, there's different kinds of legacies. You know, five years is almost impossible to buy. It costs £2.25. And mm. in, the, in the spirit of music and bands at the time where you got a free badge with the early purchase of the blue vinyl album or whatever it was. Um, I gave a free badge with anyone who bought a copy of five years from me. And actually, only the other day I posted something on Facebook about the Milltown Boys at 60. 
And a girl who used to go to my youth club in Birmingham, she sent a photograph. She said, I lost the book, but I've still got the bag. Huh. Nice. <laughs> nice. Well. Uh, which, was, which was quite sweet. But, um, you know, one of the legacies quite fast was that the five years became the first set book for the first uh, distance learning course for youth and community workers by the YMCA National College. Mm. And uh, strangely, it's so hard to get on Amazon. If you can get it, it's like a hundred pounds or one hundred and twenty pounds. And one of the boys died in January and one of his children has said she didn't have a book copy of the book anymore. This guy who died used to introduce me as the he's the one who writes the books, you know, to to his his mates. Yeah. And and, um, I uh, I looked on Google just in case there was a copy available. And there was a copy from Bridge North County Library or something for £20. So I bought it and I got this rather tatty, dog-eared copy, uh, which I was going to take to this child of one of the Meltdown boys. Uh, But then I looked inside and it was a remaindered book from the YMCA National College Library. Mm. So it had obviously been a book they bought for the course. So I, I... do have one or two pristine brand new copies of the original book so i gave that one to the the child the brand new pristine copy i gave that to him and i kept the dog-eared 20 quid one because that's a kind of symbol of the legacy the immediate legacy of five years Mm. the legacy of the milltown boys revisited was that very few people had done 20-year follow-ups of anybody you know, people always talk about it in research, yeah. but never actually yeah. do it. Yeah. So that got a lot of um, very, very uh, complimentary reviews and a lot of interest about what, you know, what was life like for these individuals at 40. Mm. Nobody's ever done one that's lasted 50 years. Um, and I write about that as an American study, which I thought was going to be some grizzled old professors following up. It's subtitled Delinquent Boys age 70, so I was imagining a 90-year-old professor, or, mm. uh, but actually it was somebody found an archive of material on young delinquents in America and had followed up, so they hadn't known them. I've known these guys for all, all their lives, or except for the first 10 years of their life. Uh, mm. I do have this profound relationship with them, for good and for bad. I mean, I think I will get quite seriously criticised methodologically for some of the relationship things that I did, which perhaps undermined the scientific nature of the study. But what else can you do when you know people? If they're in dire straits or in a real mess, you help. And, you know, so my youth work kicked in and my youth research was put to one side. So there are those sorts of things. The the final point about legacy is really that I asked a number of different people to write endorsements for the book. I asked a couple of youngish European researchers, one in Portugal who's done her PhD modelled on the Meltdown Boys revisited book, and one from north of Finland. Um, They're people I know quite well. And then I asked three very distinguished older academics, my sort of generation, my sort of age. And uh, I was terrified what they might write because I thought they might I thought they might write me an email saying, really nice to read, Howard, but um, rather tricky to endorse it because uh, we're not quite sure about your methodology. We're not quite sure about this, not quite sure about that. All the endorsements came through at the end of October and they were all majestic. Nice. I 
I was tearful and I was elated. Um, they were saying this should transform debate about how we do research on people away from the single issue kind of uh, snapshots into sort of life story narratives. Um, they, they were very, very complimentary. And two of the boys in the book have also produced endorsements for it. That's, so that's, that's what you want, isn't it? So I've got three professors, two junior researchers and two of the Milltown boys giving me seven endorsements in all. And that feels great for me. I mean, it, I feel it sounds a very morbid thing to say, doesn't it? You know, a lifetime achievement. But I, I've always wanted to do this book. I had some doubts as to whether I should. And I had a lot more doubts as to whether I would or could because of traveling and so on. Mm. COVID has given me that opportunity to, to write it. And I wrote I, this time a year ago. I'd hardly started it. So, I mean, it's been written by the end of September, all the topping and tailing by the end of October. The um, I, I was going to publish it myself. I didn't think anyone would be very interested in it. And then I bunged in a few book proposals to see what happened. Routledge came back very positive about it with five reviews, four of which were very positive and one which was more critical. Mm. But they decided to go ahead. And since November, I've been working with Routledge on marketing and publicity <laughs> yes and of course the trouble with academic books is you know i mean uh and it, it's a shame with yours because it's got a really human story to tell but a lot of academic books they end up in university libraries and they're crazily expensive aren't they you know often uh how can people get hold of a copy of yours if anybody wanted to get hold of a copy of yours <laughs> well still crazily ex expensive steve in oh. That's the comment that comes back. I mean, the hardback is 120 quid. Yeah. The, the paperback is, I think, 35, 34.99. Mm. Um, there is an e-book, which is 24.99, I think. Um, I have negotiated a 25% discount with Routledge, which I negotiated last week, and I've posted that on Facebook. Uh, it's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not a marketeer, so I, I feel almost quite bad about sort of asking mm. people to buy a copy. Uh, and I'm I'm a bit embarrassed about the price, but that is the price of academic books. And I'm very pleased that Routledge have produced a paperback version um, out on May the 10th. I've ordered a lot of copies myself because all of the boys will get one signed by me. I will deliver them by hand when I get the opportunity to do that. Nice. Um, some of them, they'll get more than one copy for different private and personal reasons. Yeah. And then I've got the people who've helped me along the way that I want to make sure they get a copy. Um, so uh, maybe I need the university to give me a bit of help with uh, how I might broadcast it in the absence of any kind of uh, physical uh, release. The last one I, I launched at the Houses of Parliament. Uh, one of the boys came with me and I had an MP sponsor it. And uh, a lot of people turned up and you were able to buy a copy there and then at some reasonable discount. Um, but for me... You know, it, it, it's done now. It's, it, it's out. It's available. I won't make any money on it. The covers, both the last two covers were painted by one of the Milltown boys who, after 20 years of drug addiction and imprisonment and, you know, a, a pretty addicted lifestyle, um, he did a degree in fine art at Cardiff University. And um, so we, uh, we conspired on the, uh, the kind of way we might produce a cover. 
I've got a three foot by two foot oil painting in my university office, which is the original painting. And this time he did a, a smaller, I don't know quite what the dimensions are, but a, a smaller version of the, the cover. I said, will you paint the cover again? And he did. And we, we conspired again about what it should look like, what should go in it, graffiti on a wall and mm. people roughly yeah. the 60 standing in a field and some council houses in the background. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, that is the, and I, I will also have a, when I'm allowed to have a celebration with the boys at my house, you know, and, and people get worried about going native and, you know, having sort of uh, lost my critical scientific distance. Um, I went to, you know, as I said, the one who died in January, he had seven children, 15 grandchildren, a partner, surviving siblings, close mates. You add all those together and that meant at least 29 people, but they invited me. They wanted me to be number 30 at the service. Uh, so, you know, I am part of their lives as they are part of my lives. And despite all their faults and all their really rather nasty behavior on the part of some, I still love them all deeply. I mean, I, I feel very close to them in many ways. And uh, um, I... I never laugh so much as when I'm with them because humour is the thing that has taken them through pretty tough lives in a lot of ways. Yeah. And they are very, very funny human beings. <laughs> I come back with aching ribs from events that I go to with them. Well, uh, listen, um, Howard, um, good luck with the book, which is the, the Milltown Boys. You said uh, the paperback edition is coming out on May the 10th. All, uh, of, them, all of them come out today. Brilliant. Uh, great. Well, and, and, and good luck with that. And, and thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. <laughs>